Have you ever had uh, one of your friends or family members uh, say to you, oh, man, it was awesome. You should have been there. I can't even begin to explain it. It was such a great time. You know, those those words that that bring up the, the fear that lies within us that even has an acronym, right? FOMO. Fear of missing out. You know, maybe it was the party or the concert or uh, the vacation or, or just seeing a movie. Whatever reason you couldn't be there, it, it hurts to miss out. Now, that is uh, a, a big thing, FOMO, these days. Well, as we look at God's Word together, we're in Isaiah chapter 7, and we're looking at another Advent passage, another one of these coming passages. And here we see the Lord is actually working to keep King Ahaz from missing out. The Lord comes to him, and the king Ahaz, this is probably around 735 B.C., and there are two neighboring kingdoms just to the north of Judah where Ahaz is king. And and they're trying to kill Ahaz. They want to bump him off and put their own guy in place because they're concerned about Assyria, the big superpower further away. At the same time, Ahaz is considering, hey, maybe I should call on Assyria to help me so these guys don't take us out. All the people are afraid. Ahaz is afraid. And yet Ahaz, we'll read, is willing to miss out on what the Lord offers He doesn't want it. He doesn't think he needs it. And he couldn't be more wrong. In this case, he really ought to have a fear of missing out. Because what the Lord is offering is his own presence. And there is nothing greater than that. So as we come to this passage, I'd encourage you to think about that. Do you need the Lord? Do you want the Lord? Are you concerned about missing out? on what the Lord offers. And if you are, how do you get Him? Well, let's see. If you would, please read with me. Isaiah chapter 7. We're going to read verses 10 through 16. And verse 14 in particular is our focus. This is God's Word. Isaiah 7.10 Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying... Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, listen now, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men? That you will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. This is God's Word. Lord, would You bless the hearing the reading, the power of Your Word to our hearts. Meet us here 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so this is the second time that Ahaz has heard from the Lord. As the passage started off in verse 10, it says, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz. Now we're not sure how long it's been since what we know of here in Isaiah 7 as verses 1 through 9 and now verse 10. We don't know how long that gap is. The situation is still the same. Those two kingdoms are off to the north trying to uh, come against Ahaz and get him out of power. The two kings are Reason, who's the king of Aram or Syria, and Pekah, who's the king of Israel, the former part of the kingdom that was united under David and Solomon. Those ten tribes that broke off to the north, now called Samaria. While Ahaz is king of the southern kingdom, which is just those two tribes, the small portion, and to this point, always led by a descendant of King David. And so this is where Ahaz finds himself. Isaiah and his son have already, just skimming through the beginning of chapter 7 with me, Isaiah and his son have come out at the instruction of the Lord to meet Ahaz the first time. The Lord said to him, Go meet Ahaz, verse 3. You and your son share Jeshub at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. Ahaz is there, no doubt, at that upper pool making sure that they have enough water supply. Because in those days, when someone wanted to take you out, you would go hide in your city, in your walled city, and you would make sure you had enough water especially and other food provisions because all they had to do was just hang around outside long enough for you to get really hungry or for you to get really thirsty and they would starve you out. It was a siege, the main way that those wars happen. And so Ahaz is being a, you know, a prudent leader, making sure we got enough water supply in the city. When Isaiah comes the first time with his son, the circumstances are, are desperate. It's a big deal. And the Lord meets Ahaz there by the pool. And he says in verse 4, through the prophet Isaiah, take care and be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrands on account of the fierce anger of Reason and Aram and the son of Remaliah. The Lord comes to Ahaz and says, don't, don't worry. Be still, you might say. Be calm. Have no fear. Do not be faint-hearted. These are only two human beings. Don't be afraid. And then he says in a kind of poetic way in verse 8, don't worry, verse 8, the head of Aram, Syria, is Damascus, the city, and the head of Damascus is Reason, the king. Then he says in verse 9, the head of Ephraim, or Israel, the northern kingdom, is Samaria, the city. And the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah, or Pekah. 
the, the poetic language there as the prophets almost did, almost always did, just kind of emphasizing, look, there's a land and a city and a king. There's a land and a city and a king. Don't worry about these guys and their human king. Don't worry about those guys and their human king. And, and it would seem to call out for Ahaz to think, okay, well, if that's the head and that's the city and that's the king, what about us? What about Judah? The head of Judah is Jerusalem, the city where Ahaz is. And the head of Jerusalem is... And that's the big question. The Lord comes to Ahaz and is essentially saying, who is the head of Jerusalem? Who is the leader? And the right answer is, of course, the Lord. The second best answer is Ahaz. But Ahaz doesn't give any real response. And the Lord is saying, in essence, look at the end of verse 9. If you will not believe, you surely shall not stand. You know, if you are not established, you, you will not continue. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a poetic thing in the Hebrew there. It's hard to translate it. Essentially calling, calling you to stand. It says essentially, if you won't stand, if you won't believe, if you won't stand by faith, you're not going to stand at all, Ahaz calling him, the Lord calling him, and ask him, are you with me, the Lord says to Ahaz. Are you with me, Ahaz? Will you stand with me? No matter what it seems like is going on, no matter how scary the enemy Ahaz, they are just human beings, and I am the king, and I have made promise. I, the Lord is the king. I have made promises, he says. And I will be with you. You need not worry about them. And the implication is what we will find out later is that Ahaz chooses Assyria rather than the Lord. And the Lord is here trying to say, look, don't make any other alliances. Trust me. I will provide for you. I will see you through this. And, and for us today, essentially the same thing is true, brothers and sisters. The Lord is with you. And He will prove it to you. The thing is, you only see the proof if you stand with the Lord. He will show you again and again and again and again and again and again that He is with you if you will stand with Him. But if you won't stand with Him, you won't stand at all. You certainly won't see God's faithfulness. It's a call to commitment. It's a call to act it's a call for us to stand with the Lord. And what does that look like? That's what we're going to examine today in this passage. What does it look like to stand with the Lord? The first thing we see is it means you obey God's commands. You obey God's commands. The, <laughs> that's a real struggle, even when it seems easy. That's what Ahaz shows us, actually. If you look at verse 11... Verse 10, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol, as the grave, as the, as the, as the underworld, or as high as the heavens. The Lord is saying to Ahaz, here is a blank check. Ask for whatever you want, some supernatural thing to happen that would not otherwise happen, Ahaz. Ask for it. Higher, higher the better, the deeper the better, whatever. Think of anything at all, Ahaz. 
Ask me for it so that I might prove my word to you. That I might confirm that I am going to be faithful to these promises. You would think like, wow. You know, you read about Gideon and the fleece, you know, and, and the whole weird thing about making you know, this kind of waffling and it seems kind of weird. Now here is the Lord saying, Ahaz, just ask for whatever you want. You know, say, strike this tree down or say, put that hill into the sea. He could have named anything and been obedient to God's command. But what does Ahaz say? Look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. It was often easier to make excuses, especially ones that sound religious, that sound pious, right? that sound faithful. It's often easier to make excuses for our unbelief than to exercise our faith by keeping a clear command. Ahaz says, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. And, and of course, we shouldn't put the Lord to the test. He's absolutely right. Testing the Lord is about tying your obedience or your trust in God to God's performance. To say, Lord, if you do X or Y, then I will believe you. Right? This is the opposite of that. The Lord is saying to him, ask what you want me to do, and I will do it. The Lord is opening up the opportunity. He's not answering to some sort of test. You know, we sometimes do this where we're like, God, if, you know, if God really loved me, he would do this or that. If God really existed, he would do this or that. That's putting the Lord to the test. Essentially, it's, it's judging God by your own standards. Determining God's goodness and character based on what you think God should do. And that's a very dangerous place to be, testing the Lord. It's wrong. Deuteronomy 6.16 says it very clearly. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Here Moses in the second generation of the people coming out of the promised land reminds them of how when they were first freed from slavery and they were just supernaturally, miraculously delivered, and they grumbled and complained and grumbled and complained and grumbled and complained, that at one point they essentially said, we should go back to Egypt. It was better there. God's not taking good care of us. And in Exodus 17, 1-7, where there, that account is told, they end, the passage ends with the people saying, or with the verse that says this, they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? Lord, are you, are you, are you with us or not? Putting God to the test. You know, Jesus was tested in the, in the wilderness by Satan who said, hey, here's a scripture passage. God says he'll take care of you. Why don't you just jump off of the temple and God will make sure you don't get hurt. And Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus is answering Satan who's saying, why don't you put God to the test? Here is God speaking to Ahaz, 
saying, I'm offering you an opportunity for you to know for sure that I'm going to do what I say. That's not testing the Lord to take Him up on His promises. It's not testing the Lord to obey His command. The Lord literally is a command here. Ask a sign. You don't get an easier command, do you? (laughs) Tell me how you want me to prove that I'm real to you, Ahaz. And Ahaz says, I don't want you to. Essentially rebuking God and saying, you shouldn't be asking me for that. Ahaz puts himself in a dangerous place which is always where we wind up when we don't obey God's commands. If you think about it, these promises, this is what God has said. If you obey His commands, He'll be with you. It will go well with you. Literally, that's what it says to children, right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Honor your father and your mother that it may go well with you and you may live long in the land the Lord your God has given you. Paul, when he refers to that later on in Ephesians 6, says it's the first commandment with a promise. It's super clear. It's written right out there. Children, obey your parents. There's really not a lot of debate there. That's what God calls you children to do. And the beautiful thing is, if you will do that, as you grow up, other things being equal, it will go better for you. You will be a better employee. You will be a better student. You will be a better church member. You'll be a better friend. You'll, you'll, you'll be better in so many ways. And we've seen that throughout history as children grow up, learning to obey their parents. They, they, they get along better with others. They understand authority. They spend less time in jail, right? These are the things that happen if we will obey God's commands. It's easy to pick on children, right? So, well, you know, what about for us grown-ups? How about things like forgive one another? We could just stay there for a while. Forgive as God has forgiven you in Christ. Love one another, Jesus says, as I have loved you. So you are to love one another. All the world will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Jesus says elsewhere, if if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. That you might be reconciled. If you are going to worship and you remember your brother has something against you, you go and try to be reconciled. Pursue reconciliation. In other words, this is an easy way to just summarize all of those commands. If you want to be with the Lord, that's what He's asking. You stand with the Lord by obeying God's commands. It's about exercising faith. Yet under that is something more important. More foundational maybe be the way to say it. That obeying God's commands flows from believing God's promises. That's our second point. Obeying God's commands flows from believing God's promises. We see this in verse 13, where the Lord reminds Ahaz who he is, that he is where he is because of God's promises. Verse 13, he said, 
Isaiah speaking, the Lord through Isaiah, then he, Isaiah, said, listen now, O house of David. He doesn't just call him King Ahaz. He says, house of David. He says, Ahaz, you're, you're not just you, an individual. You are the king of Judah. You are there because you are a blood descendant of David. You are there, in other words, because I made promises. Ahaz, will you believe my promises? God is reminding him. Oh, house of David. And he goes on to, to speak in verse 13. All of these pronouns that's, that say you, this is where English doesn't help us sometimes. Those you pronouns in verse 13 are all plural. Verse 13, he continues, Listen, O house of David, is it too slight a thing for you, plural, y'all, yous, to try the patience of men that you, plural, y'all, will try the patience of my God as well? Who's the Lord talking to? He's talking to Ahaz, but he's talking to Ahaz not only as the king and leader of God's people, but as the descendant of King David, as the representative of all the kings, because he's the one that's there now. And the Lord's expressing his persistent frustration that the kings that he put in place were not faithful. Will you try my patience as well? The Lord addresses his concerns. And for his part, Ahaz has the promises of God available to him. He has the history he knows the stories, and like every king before him, he's falling short of God's ideal. In fact, Ahaz chooses to distance himself from God. Look at verse 13. Is it a slight thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? If you look back at when the Lord came to him in verse 11, he said, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. And then Ahaz says, I will not ask. I won't test the Lord. And then it becomes at the end of verse 13, will you try the patience of my God? The implication is you're not taking him as your God, Ahaz. He's my God, Isaiah says. He doesn't seem to be your God. Because if you don't believe God's promises, you don't experience God's presence. If God were your God, Ahaz, you would believe God's promises. He's in such a bad place, he's not willing to consider any evidence. He's not willing to change his position. Ahaz most likely has decided firmly that he's going to go to Assyria and ask them for help. And it's going to be the end of Israel. The northern kingdom is going to be taken into captivity within 10 or so years from this point. They will cease to exist as a nation. As well, Syria will be taken into captivity. The southern kingdom where Ahaz is will continue its death rattle for about 100 more years before finally it is taken into captivity. But before that happens, they continually face uh, attacks from Egypt coming up as a superpower from the south and from Assyria uh, from the east, but they come around and wind up coming from the north. They, they are attacked and harassed and they dwindle and are finally taken into captivity 
around 100 years or so after this. You know, this, this, this reality of standing for God has to start with believing His promises. You're not going to keep His commands. You're not going to obey His commands if you don't believe God's promises. We, for, we forfeit so many benefits. And you can think about it, you know, of course, you know, radically veering away into injustice and exploiting people and, you know, just being nasty or whatever. Yeah, sure, you're forfeiting God's benefits. But, but even in more subtle ways, we can do this where we can, we can use God's Word to serve our own purposes and not truly benefit from it. I did this as, as an unbeliever in my uh, late teens and early 20s. I worked at Pizza Hut. And uh, I knew enough about the Bible only going to, to church like once or twice a year. Never really reading it. I did go to a bike camp a couple of times where they made us read scriptures before we could get our beans at night uh, around the fire. But I knew enough that the, the Bible said in the Ten Commandments that, you know, you should rest on the Sabbath. And I didn't realize that when it said that Saturday was a Sabbath. I thought Sunday was a Sabbath. And so I thought, this is really, this is good. This works out well because I don't want to work on Sundays. I'd like to keep my job, but I really would like to have off every Sunday. I never went to church. I wanted to watch football. And I said, so I have this conviction that I, I, I shouldn't work on Sundays. And it's a religious thing, so you have to not make me work. And they're like, wow, didn't know you're religious. And I was like, now you do. Is that terrible? So self-serving. I mean, you can't get much more self-serving a use of God's word. And here's what happened, though. I didn't, just, I didn't even put this together until really recently. Just this week even, as I was thinking about this. What happened was, I was worshiping football. I was literally worshiping the Eagles, and my life was tied to them, and my Sundays were revolving around them. And when they won, I felt great for a little while. And when they lost, I felt miserable. But even when I felt great after the game, and then later on that day, I felt the emptiest I did at any point in my life in those days. Because I think underneath was just this nagging sensation that this isn't it. And it's God's gracious judgment upon me saying, this is never going to satisfy you. They could win a Super Bowl and you would still not find more than a fleeting happiness. And it was on Sunday nights when I would find myself going to the newsstand and buying pornography, when I would find myself feeling empty and alone in those Sunday nights, when after my roommates would go to bed, I would flick through the channels and, and listen to these crazy preachers on TV. This, it was always in that circumstance that I would find the most emptiness in my life. Because I wasn't believing God's promises. I was actually appearing to keep His commands, but not believing His promises. And it was never going to go well for me. And what I did not find was an experience of God's presence, which is our third point. 
that if we obey God's commands, rooted in believing God's promises, you're going to experience God's presence, which is the opposite of emptiness. And it's amazing to me, if you look in this passage and think about it from a big picture, that the failures of Ahaz, he was not a good king. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He was not a good king. He did not walk like David. He was not a good thing. Yet God came to him twice in the midst of his circumstances. God met him there and said, look, ask anything of me. God gave him so many opportunities. And Ahaz said no. And that's what leads to verse 14. The central promise we're looking at today. Therefore, the Lord Himself... Ahaz has rejected the sign offer from God, and so the prophet says, Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Again, plural. Give y'all a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they will call His name Emmanuel. God with us. Now remember, in context, the sign offer was to prove that God would get rid of those two kings that were going to harass Ahaz. God offered a sign to say, those guys are not going to last. They'll be gone. And Ahaz rejected that sign offer. And so the Lord says, I'm going to give you a sign. And it's kind of fuzzy as you look into it. And and I I can't say I've got this nailed down of, of what the fulfillment of the sign was in the immediate context. Because there's no real clear place if you read through Isaiah where it's like, Oh yeah, here's where the the virgin uh, had a child and she named her son Emmanuel. That just doesn't show up in this passage. I think it shows up implicitly in chapter 8 where Isaiah speaks of his children as signs and portents in Israel. Where it mentions with Isaiah going to the prophetess a child being born. And that before that child grew it says the nations would be taken out. But it doesn't, it doesn't completely fulfill in a nice, neat way. And I think, in fact, that's understandable because Ahaz rejected the offer of a sign. And God says, look, this is the problem with all of the kings that I've ever put in place. They aren't faithful to me. And you'll never experience God's presence fully through one of those kings. And we put our hope in them too often. And they begin to think they are the ruler. That they are God. But God gives this promise here that Matthew picks up on at the beginning of his Gospel in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. We read it early in the service where he's speaking of the promises of a virgin to be born to Mary. And he says, this child shall be with child to bear a son and they shall call His name Emmanuel. This took place, verse 22 of Matthew 1, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, referring back to Isaiah 7.14. That's how Matthew starts his Gospel and he speaks of Jesus. right? And then Jesus Himself ends Matthew's Gospel with the Great Commission in Matthew 28.18-20. And what, what does He say there? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching, going... And I am with you always to the end of the age. The the promise is fuzzy 
in its initial fulfillment, and it doesn't really even matter that much to us. But what we need to know is that it's fulfilled in its fullness in this bigger picture in the One who would come and be God among us. The One who would come that we might experience God's presence with great depth, with great intimacy. That this One would come. That God Himself would enter into this world because every human ruler is going to fail. That God Himself would unite Himself to humanity in a mysterious way in the womb of the Virgin Mary. That this One would be God and humanity together. That He would live perfectly. That He would suffer unjustly. Bearing as the God-man our guilt, our sin, our shame on that cross and pay the full penalty. And because He is the God-man, He could do that within days and rise victorious to send the Spirit that we might be willing to obey Him. That we might be willing to follow Him. That He might be God with us. That in other words, the only place you're going to fully experience the, the presence of God the only way that, that you're going to be able to believe God's promises and then act out obeying God's commands is through Jesus. It's one of the reasons that we have communion. That we would never forget that it's always going to be through Jesus. That it is the presence of God mediated through Jesus. That we need Jesus. That we have to believe in Jesus. We have to put our faith and confidence in Him. That we have to believe these promises that God did come. That God is with us. That God is for us. And that we need Him today. And yesterday. And forever. And He will be there. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank You that You have opened up to us a way to experience You and Your presence among us. That You have given us great intimacy by sending Your Spirit into our hearts. All it requires of us is to believe Your promise. That You are a God who would draw near. That You are a God who loves us enough to take our sin and our guilt and our shame. That You are a God powerful enough to win the victory over death and hell and Satan. That You are a God who is working in all these things for our good. We come to You thankful for that, Lord. We, we come to You believing those promises. Help us to obey Your commands that we might experience Your presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.